What's going on, Champion Sharks? This is Trevor. Uh, Mario's going to be joining us a little bit later, but I just wanted to get started with our guest. But before we introduce him, some quick um, housekeeping. Go to patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. $5 a month to get double the episodes, access to the voice and chat Discord server, and a bunch of other goodies that I do not want to promise. I just want to send them out because I've been promising one of them for a while, and we've been getting your technical glitches worked out on it. And I think it's about to be um, worked out. Yeah, so it's about maybe about 120 back episodes premium you get access to instantly unlocked the minute you become a patron. And also you get previews of our coming guests and your chance to suggest questions for us to ask, which we're going to be doing today with today's guest. So you'll see some listener questions asked today as well. So that's another perk. And without further ado, we have our guest. If you don't mind introducing yourself. Hello, my name is Ayumi Ose Frimpong. I'm in Athens, Georgia, and I study political philosophy at UGA. I run a show called The Funky Academic, or a website called The Funky Academic. You can just go to funkyacademic.com. And every week I do a local politics show in Athens, Georgia politics. But with Are kind of a... Yeah, I try to do it in a way that it helps everyone do their own local politics. Anywhere there's, I say, anywhere there's poor black people surrounded by white people with money in the suburbs, my show will work. And that's a lot of places in the United States. You are someone that um, I've been following since uh, the early days of your YouTube and also when you were with uh, Yvette Carnell. Yvette yeah. Carnell has been a former guest of of the show. And um, I feel like you were kind of a late adopter to Twitter. I feel like you and Yvette were kind of Facebook people. But uh, you've, hit the, you've hit the ground running. Lately, you've been really active on Twitter. Uh, Twitter and I've really been liking a lot of your tweets. It's uh Yeah, well Facebook, I'm a I'm a little bit of a longer form writer. <laughs> so I was slow on Twitter just because 140 characters. But it, you know, there's a discipline. Also, Twitter is weird because I can be as smart or as interesting or as poignant as anyone for 140 qu- characters. I mean like anyone in the world. I'm pretty smart. Like I can bang with, you know, Paul Krugman. I could I could go one-on-one with anyone for 140 characters. And I kind of, it's a weirdly democratizing medium in that way. Because if I just that have is... one point that I've thought through and I get it out, it could be as good as Albert Einstein's one point, you know? Yeah, I think it's also part of the problem because I think that's how a lot of these kind of not-so-bright influencers kind of gain prominence because they can get a good soundbite. And then you find out later, okay, they don't really have much to say, you know? So it's, 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 uh... <laughs> that, that was it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that's like that a big a rise movie. of grifters. That just You just kind of find out like way too late after they get a bigger platform. Like, wow, this person really has... Like, uh, there was someone... I, I, I don't want to... I'm trying to be less mean in the show, but like, like there was someone that I used to see on... Uh, Twitter and then when they would like tweet, I'm like, person doesn't really seem too bright, but they write books. Maybe the books, maybe when, when they, maybe when they do long form, I'm really gonna see the genius. And then I bought, I, I didn't buy. I went to the library and got their book, and it was just one giant long form dumb tweet, like yes. just paragraphs and paragraphs of just it was just a giant twitter thread as a book and i feel like that's one thing that scares me about twitter that it's gonna enable a lot of long i think a lot of wrong long form writing is gonna just become twitter threads just on paper Uh, okay that's that is a danger because one thing about twitter is a lot of people don't read right like a lot of people who write tweets don't read and then now if they're just writing books of long tweets and they still haven't read 
Yeah, yeah, because they're getting book deals off their like Twitter influence, but they don't they don't really know how to write long form. And I think uh, like I've seen your long form writing. You write very well long form. I've read on your Medium page things like that, things that you've written. I didn't but, know people were getting book deals off their Twitter. Oh my god, a lot of people are. It, we had a, we had an episode. We called it the Influencer Industrial Complex, and it was all just about that. About like um. Just a lot of people. Uh, okay, like like think about it. I'll, I'll think of some names because I've been collecting these names. Uh, uh, this guy Frederick Joseph, who uh, made the Black Panther challenge, and now he's a Elizabeth Warren surrogate. And he and he also has done some. He's he's making a children's book. I think he's in a memoir. This guy from BuzzFeed, uh, Saeed Jones. I mean, he works for BuzzFeed, but he's really a Twitter guy. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, he got a memoir. Amanda's got a memoir. Love you. Care got about a... any of these people's lives? Yeah, that's that's the thing. I'm like, what have you done to fill up a memoir yet? No, no shade. Like you know, but what what are you writing about? That I mean, like it took people like Martin Luther King and um, <laughs> yeah, and know, Nkrumah and. Malcolm X and these people like very substantially lived lives before they felt worthy to write. Right. You know, they took real books. chances and like actively yeah. and wrestled with things. Yeah. People tweet for a couple of years and then they just start writing memoirs. It's crazy. And I, they had a chapter from DeRay's uh, memoir. Oh my, I have no, it, re- I do not want to read about DeRay. Oh my God! But why would but, I do but that? One of his one of his chapters was how uh, basically Storm from the X Men was his like spirit animal basically and his hero and taught him it was okay to dream like like that was a serious chapter they they excerpted it in uh, New York Magazine. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I like I I I can't I can't be interested in Duray. I just I can't. He's absolutely as thin as I thought he would he was then. Yeah. Oh, for, oh, for sure, for sure. But yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, the whole influencer industrial complex. We talk about it a lot, but. I- um, I tried, yeah. but it is a possible, like it is possible. I've met some really smart people and I'm followed and following some really bright people. Um, thanks to Twitter. And I, I can't, I can't, I mean, like now I email crystal ball. I think that's pretty cool. Right. Like, no, no, that's true. I mean, myself and the co-host of the show, we met off of Twitter, so I can't, okay. yeah. I can't uh, be too critical of it. You know, like I just, I just think the signal to noise ratio is, um, <laughs> A big problem, but there is signal there. You know, you just have to be patient with it. Yeah. And you have to just find out. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how do you distribute ideas? That's if you can distribute ideas, you win, right? You can't do it on the mainstream media. They don't let me on NPR. So I'm not on MSNBC. I could every now and then they let me on Fox, some Fox affiliates. And and, and I do believe like it does work as a democratizing tool. Like I think it does. I mean, there's a lot of people who I think... I mean, people, there's people I've gotten on this show that I would not have gotten on without Twitter. Like, if I had to send them an email or snail mail, like, you know, it wouldn't happen. But <laughs> there's a lot of people who, because Twitter is so instantaneous and yes. reflexive, yes. there's a lot of people who will write you back on Twitter that you would normally never, never, never have. Never. Yeah. People, like, there's people who have accepted uh, coming on this show who would never come on uh, pre-Twitter. So I can't complain about it too much. I just feel like, but, you know, this is with everything. It's with TV. It's with just about anything. Like, like most books probably are, you know, kind of fluff if you really. Yes, I worked at, in a bookstore. It's yeah. all fluff. Like, <laughs> I, yeah, if you judge books by what stands the test of time, you would think, like, you know, most books published are, like, great, especially in the past. But, you know, every 
year had like 80% fluff probably. Not even I think that's generous. Yeah. I honestly I I I'm very suspicious of novels written past. I don't know when did Cavalier and Clay come out? 2000 2000. Was it really <laughs> early 2000? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I'm really suspicious of. Yeah. No, I feel you on that. There's been a lot of stuff going on and Speaking you, of me- yeah, go on. Real quickly about memoirs, I read Pete Buttigieg's. Did you? Oh my god, that's a great that's a great segue because that's one of the first things I was gonna ask you yes. about. Uh, actually, uh, you know what? Let's just go straight into that because I have two questions about Pete Buttigieg that I yeah. wanted to get your take on. One was, I know you're not crazy about him. Man. I am not crazy about him. Yeah, and I want to talk about that, but I also wanted to see if you had any theories because I have none. Usually, <laughs> when I ask my guests a question, I usually have like my own um, personal theories, even if I'm asking them. I have nothing. This is all in your court. Why? Where is the surge coming from? What in his ideas? What in his personality? What are people connecting to in the, in this guy that makes him number two? Like the fact that he was even in a contestable space with Sanders in Iowa blows my mind. So he's young in a field where everyone else is old. And he's like a lot younger. The closest is Kobachar at 59. And she's not exactly a pillar of charisma. So he's got ageism working for him. People like the young hot thing. He's gay and gay isn't particularly economically threatening. (laughs) Uh, uh, Can you explain economically threatening? Economic, like Bernie wants to democratize the workplace. He's trying to empower workers to organize for their fair share of 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 the profits. Pete just Pete Pete's most edgy aspect is that like he wants the right to have sex with guys, which is fine. <laughs> like it's not it's not that big of a deal. Um it seems like a big deal because we tie a whole lot to sexuality because um there's a way in which gender and sexual scripts holds together the racial hierarchy in this like weird subconscious way. But if it's just Pete wanting to have sex with guys nobody cares because like it's his business and like that's fine it's not threatening to anybody especially when he goes out of his way to say i'm not threatening to anybody i just want a suburban house with my husband and i'll even fight in your wars for you and and you know what's interesting when you say that something just flashed in my mind is that in that way he is kind of a lot like obama and yeah Obama uh, didn't. Obama won because of how black he wasn't, and people don't really um, kind of appreciate that. But he was a black guy that wasn't black, and I, and and I'm not saying that to judge his like racially. I mean, right, like right. Um, you know, because like, I want people to say, "Oh, are you questioning his uh, racial bona fides?" Like, no, like I'm not no, saying no. that, but I mean his image. He even went out of his way to critique black culture no. in a very performative, vocal way. No, he took out Jeremiah Wright. He had to prove that he was not black. He took out his own pastor just to show I'm not black like he's black. Yep, yep. And he gave a lot of speeches to black audiences, but I think they were really for white audiences watching him speak to the black (laughs) audience to let them see, hey, you know, I'm telling these guys to pull up their pants. I'm telling them to stop blaming the white man, you know? And uh, so uh, I I feel like Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg goes out of his way to like if, no, if, uh, look, if Obama Pete was Buttigieg, be, yeah. if he wanted to be a gay advocate he could talk about youth homelessness rates right so queer youth mm-hmm. are like some 50 to 60 percent of the home youth homelessness in pretty much every urban center in America because you know you get kicked out of your your small town you go to the city you assume that life is going to be great in the city then you get to the city and there are no services for you so you end up homeless right so that's a huge LGBT uh, issue that Pete Buttigieg is not going to talk about <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, it's it's true. But you know, a lot of even more vocal gay activists don't even uh, don't talk, about talk, talk about that anymore. They kind of uh, talk about, they kind of talk about very bourgeois concerns, you know? They want to be like, married like nice white people. <laughs> like that's not Yep, a, yep. There's a, there's a good book. It's called Safe Why Space. I, oh no, I don't know about that one. Um, But, but this one is called, actually there's two. I think it might be about the same guy. One is called "Why Are F Words So Afraid of F Words?" It doesn't say F words, but yeah. But it's about it's about a gay guy talking about so many like why so many gay politicians or advocates play this respectability politics, but they want to kind of de-queer themselves and like you know avoid like trappings or stereotypes of gayness and like like their idea of progress is proving that gay people are just exactly the same as uh, straight people. Like, yeah, in that way, it's, it is a lot like the respectability black discourse. Yeah, and the same author, uh, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, has another book called, like, That's Revolting, and it's Queer Strategies for Resisting Assimilation. And I feel like Pete Buttigieg is everything that those books uh, was (laughs) kind of prescribing against. Yeah, he's like the nightmare that they were. Exactly, exactly. But yeah, so so you read Pete's memoir. I read Pete's memoir, and I... Okay, so at first, at first, I read it because I was actually excited about him. Back when there was a there was an Islamophobist event, I think it was the 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 shooting in Australia, or maybe it was the El Paso shooting. Anyway, he wrote a beautiful letter to the people of Indiana about like, look, like the Muslim community in South Bend. Not only are you safe in South Bend, you are valued members of the community. Like it's not just that we want to protect you; we need you for our city to be whole and i was like this guy actually has some political theory chops because it's not enough just to be there if you're not actually a functionally part of of civil society you're not really free you're not really you're not really a part of the city right it's kind of like black men's place in america right now we there's no real place for us (laughs) no it's it's true and uh we are not valued members of society we're not valued members of society, but we're also kind of, we've been kicked out of the oppressed category. Like, that's been the weirdest uh, thing of all. That's been the weirdest byproduct of the mainstreaming of intersectionality. It's this weird kind of thing where suddenly we've been told that we're privileged. And it's like, holy shit, where did, where did this come from? I don't know. I don't, we're like 50% of the homeless, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Forget about jail. Jail. Yeah. Forget we don't about live suspension. very long. Yeah, suspension. Uh suspensions expulsions 1.5 million uh just straight up missing that people just don't even know <laughs> just lost where they are. Negroes, yeah, yeah yeah they're not in the workforce they're not in the census no one knows where these people are but somehow like we're privileged based on just uh anecdotes like you know <laughs> people will say things like growing up uh my brother didn't have to wash dishes like like that's <laughs> that's, that's data now like like someone who's an actual activist will who gets he's in jail speeches. now but <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> he doesn't have a job now but <laughs> But you didn't have to wash those dishes. Oh, oh no, you know what? That's even crazier. I've seen some like uh, blue check activists say stuff like, a privilege is he gets to live at home and not work. <laughs> well, well, I have to work. <laughs> like, like they'll have weird logic like that where they'll flip the disadvantages. Like, you know, you, you know, like uh, what one lady said, and this actually happened on Yvette's show. It was a, call in, a caller that called in, and, and uh, Yvette looked at his face like this person was crazy. But this person called in and, and was saying that uh, black men like going to jail and it's like a privilege that they get to go in you know because they get shelter food and want to be in a cage man yeah yeah so a lot of them uh you know 
they get locked up on purpose and they want to go in and like that's like a privilege it's, like the discourse is getting weirder and weirder yeah but you're right it's led to black men not having a place. you don't have a place you're not a valued member of society sometimes society will suffer you and not treat you overtly like you're disposable but the idea that you're actually a valued important member of society and society will not be whole unless you are active in it that's not something black men feel <laughs> That's yeah. why it's so easy to put like a whole lot of us in jail and nobody missing like nobody nobody misses anything. Well, what that's interesting is if you've been watching uh, Elizabeth Warren's campaign and you've had a lot of vocal thoughts on yeah. Elizabeth Warren too. She's just gone all in on uh, black women, black women, black women. But what that's interesting and it surprised me today. She did. I don't know if you have Twitter open right now, but I can DM you this link. She sent something that was. Uh, especially about black men like, i was very surprised the first time i've seen her in all her pandering do this but she's she tweeted i'm fighting for justice and opportunity for black men in america and i want to make sure we center their voices and experiences in this fight wow. i'm committed to continue listening and learning and i'm grateful to fred t joseph and benny star for moderating this. this conversation the problem is she's like 72 years old and studied like money Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if I want her to listen to learn and learn. I, I, she should know a lot of things. I, I so agree. And that's crazy that you said that. <laughs> is that we said that last episode. We were oh. like, why is all this uh, white ally industrial complex all about listening disadvantaged people when well, you, i can tell you why it is because oh, that's all the feminists want <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> they just want to be heard like i'm talking about cut the check <laughs> i want land <Yeah. laughs> but the feminine a lot of feminists just want to be heard i don't care about being heard like i don't i don't i don't need someone like nodding their head yeah um, yeah be be my be my ear to uh to listen and all this stuff i mean you have the money you know how to navigate the structures i'm disenfranchised franchise i'm poor you tell me what i need to know like you know yeah. you tell me you're uh, the harvard professor i don't need you listening and learning <laughs> see it might be the case i don't know i definitely got this vibe from Kristen gillibrand they're nice people but like has have you ever seen elizabeth warren alone with a black man <laughs> no I, I i haven't but i'm telling <laughs> or, you or like two black like when was the last time these people were actually in alone talking to a black man about something but one thing is interesting it might have been is, decades maybe <laughs> but 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 one thing is one thing that's interesting is that even listening like, like the bar is so low that even listening is major because i'm surprised she even did this I, like i agree <laughs> listening to black men's not enough but the fact she was able to even do this yeah, I bet yeah. She, she got the clearance from a lot of black women there's no way she just did this without clearing it through the the you know the black women who endorsed her. Yeah. And and I also, you know what I think too might have happened was... Uh, uh, do you, I mean, do you think that she just kind of did this without clearing it through Elisa Garza and, and, well, and all of them? Well, well, the black men that she got here to do it are kind of like the black men in that camp. So I think, uh, you know, okay. like, like it's black men who have kind of portrayed themselves or advertised themselves feminist as feminists yeah for example uh in this video uh if you look at it right if, you, if you're watching it right now if you have it open if you look uh, one of the guys fred t joseph is wearing a shirt that says believe women oh. <laughs> during the thing 
<laughs> so there's still a subliminal that, you know, hey, uh, there's still like a feminist thing. And the video starts off with her hugging a bunch of black women. So oh, like, okay. this so kind of th thing that lets you know, this is uh, feminist approved. Like what, what's happening here? <laughs> they picked out the men that you get to yeah. talk to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he's wearing a Believe Women thing. And I think it's just what to show, hey, I'm making sure people uh, still know that uh, we're not uh, sideline because this is a weird thing now where I think it used to be the idea what helps black women helps the black community and what helps black men helps the black community but now I feel like intersectionality has connect, created this balkanization of black politics where if black men are getting too much attention you must be neglecting black women and if black women are getting too much attention what about black queers and it's just this weird new way of doing black politics that's because you know, I'm 40 plus. It's, it's, it's new to me. I don't really remember people ta talking and thinking this way. No, it's awful, especially because there's this great article. There's an article that came out last year by this guy named Chetty. And um, it's about the racial wealth gap. And it shows, I mean, I'm going to just read the, uh, the sentence in the abstract. Condition on parent income, the black-white income gap is driven entirely by large differences in wages and employment rates by black and white men. <laughs> there are no such differences between black and white women. Uh, yeah. sec secondly, differences in family characteristics such as parent marital status, education, wealth explain very little of the black-white income gap conditional on parent income. So it's all about the difference between black guys and white guys. If you marry a black, if you marry a white guy, you get a balloon. If you marry a black guy, you get an anchor. So yep. this idea that like black women are somehow emancipated from the struggles of black men. Like, if and, it, it's just, it's empirically just not true. The title of the article is Race and Economic Opportunity in the United States, an Intergenerational Perspective. And it's by this guy, Raj Chetty over at Stanford. Uh, yeah, and there was a corresponding New York Times article about it, too, that kind of summarized the uh, the bigger study. We actually spoke about that with uh, Dr. Tom Curry. He was okay. on here, and uh, we talked about it. And one of the things we talked about was how, like, the black literati, the black blue checks, I don't know what you'd call them. Yeah, but no, it's fine. That's they cool. were very antagonistic toward the article and somehow viewed it in attack on uh, black women or denying of black male privilege. Like, it was, it was weird. Like, the data was treated. <laughs> An attack on them being. Yeah, but, but nothing was about debunking the data it was <laughs> the attack was on bringing up the data somehow which is very weird no one said this data doesn't work or whatever and this guy who actually wants to read his books i might still read his books but i was just disappointed by how he behaved like uh ibram kendi um yeah uh, so that book how to be a white racist i'm a little bit suspicious of it because i got a lot of white women in my life who read that book and ended up the exact same oh really oh, oh no it was no it's called how to be anti-racist how, to, hey, be yeah, anti how to be anti-racist yeah so how to be anti-racist so what yeah you ended like, up ended up the exact same what they do you ended mean? up the exact so all these non-profit white ladies uh read that book and then end up the exact same which means that it's not doing the work Oh, oh, as in, as in they're not changing. They're not changing one bit. Oh. They're not changing one. They, it's, it doesn't, like when people read Mercer Baradaran's The Color of Money, they're like, oh, I never thought about this. This is more complex than I thought. Maybe there is something to this wealth gap thing. Uh, that's The Color of Money by Mercer Baradaran. It's a fantastic book. But when people read uh, Kendi's book, they don't change. They figure, well, I was doing good work before and I'm still doing good work. 
Oh, so is is how to be an anti-racist? I was aware of the title of it. Is yeah. it one of those things that's aimed at white allies, not black people? Yeah, it's aimed at white allies, but it doesn't oh. change white allies. It oh, doesn't yeah. change. Oh. Like that's how you know a book is doing work when the white ally comes back different. Yeah, yeah. So it's part of the whole white ally complex. Complex, that whole and thing. like a lot of them are reading it, but. They just come back thinking, well, I was doing, I was A-OK before, and now I've read this book, and this guy's got dread, so it must be real. And, and it's kind of in the New York Times. Yeah, yeah. it's in the New York Times. It just validated that they were doing the right thing the whole time. I don't know. That's, but, but, uh, it's but that's just a great been... way to get, that's a great way to get platformed, though, <laughs> yes. is, is, to, is to educate white people, but educating means uh, let them know everything they were doing was actually okay already. Like, yeah, keep listening, their nonprofit keep listening, was just great. Yeah, keep listening to NPR. Uh, yeah. <laughs> keep watching movies that quote-unquote raise awareness. Yeah. That's, that's another thing like, they love is uh, raising awareness. Not doing anything after you get the awareness raised. Just right. you know, I remember hotel like Hotel Rwanda. So many people got their awareness raised. They watched that movie and then they felt like watching it did something. And that was it. <laughs> then they voted for Clinton the next. Yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> they voted for Hillary. Yeah, that's um, that's a problem, right? So, what actually moves people to write checks to radicals? Right. That's a good. That's a good question. What the, moves the, people to write checks? To radicals who otherwise make them feel uncomfortable. I mean, Bernie has a great fundraising machine uh, that a lot of people would die for. Yes, uh, all using small donors. I think his average like donation bucks, is uh, what? What is it? I think it's eight. It was twenty seven last time. I think it's like eighteen or twenty now. Yeah, eighteen. Eighteen is what I what I heard as well. Yeah. Like, uh, and it's kind of crazy because you would think people would you know learn or be energized or whatever like it opens up so much stuff but all people seem to be doing in the democratic establishment is just be scared shitless of it yeah i don't how's bernie it's weird right so bernie's opened up this huge space for left fundraising and a lot of people have eaten off it like jackman's now doing well i'm a member of dsa so dsa is doing well look at chapo trap house chapo trap house that's doing fine michael brooks is something crystal ball is something uh but is that making it to radical black left media i don't know yeah, that's a good question. I, I mean, I, I don't think it is. I, well, actually, I'm not sure. And if hey, look, if they had a black left, if there was a black left, a little bit of a black left, Bernie would be running away, running away. If there were a black left that were a fraction of size or a fraction as funded as the white left. And the fr- white left doesn't have a ton of money, but it's got, you know, white people money. So... <laughs> well, one of, the prob- one of the problems, I think, with the black left right is um is that there's two types of black leftists this is true okay one type of black leftist is just a white leftist in blackface and yes. what they basically do is just white left like like like, like they do for white leftists what uh ibram zen ibram kendi is doing for <laughs> uh white wine moms white right. liberal wine wine right. moms which is tell them hey everything you're already doing in your socialism which is class reductionist guess what it's perfect for black people you have nothing to change you know and <laughs> right and then those that was R.L. Stein's gig for a while. Not R.L. Stein. R.L. R.L. What, what, oh, what, I, 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 I know who he talked. He got too black for about. a second. <laughs> Some black man stuff happened to him, and they kicked him out. But he was yeah. R.L. Stevens. R.L. Stevens. R.L. Yeah. Stevens. You know what happened, to R.L. Stevens? I'll tell you exactly what I think happened, to R.L. Stevens. Um, he's like that. He's like when you're dating somebody, and they start one way. And you try to switch it up, like too much into the relationship, you know. He was, like, too, he was too black for the white left. Is that he was just too? Well, 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 it wasn't just that he was too black for the white left, but he advertised himself like he was going to be 
the racism shield. Like, you know, he oh, was going to be because because he was gonna he be came there through, Exactly. He came to, he came through the door and they loved him because he did this anti Tanahasi Coates article. Oh, that good. that now all the white leftists can now point to when they want to say something about Ta-Nehisi Coates but not look racist. So oh. for a long time, every time uh, a white leftist, because this is when Ta-Nehisi Coates was really, really uh, popular on Twitter and social yeah, media. Yeah. He's kind of shied away from the spotlight. But when he was like red, red hot around the time of reparations article and mm-hmm. his Yeah, about four or five book, years ago, yeah. Yeah, yeah, between the uh, world and me. A lot of white leftists had a huge like um, mat on for him, and I'm not saying it was or wasn't justified. It's up to each individual person, but I think there was a sense <laughs> in which they wanted like a black person that would you know say something about him, and they and they got him. He had this article, and um, I'll tell you what it's called because basically, whenever anybody was talking about Ta-Nehisi Coates, people would just spam like white leftists would spam them with this article. Oh, that that RL wrote. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's called uh, the birthmark of damnation, Tanahasi Coates and the black body, and and he was making appearances, talking on podcasts, <laughs> talking about Tanahasi Coates and stuff. So I think they all thought, okay, this guy is gonna be um, he's our shield. He's, yeah, yeah, he, he's he's our dude. And then they elected him to uh, DSA on on like this major position. I forget what it's something NP. I forget what it's called. I'm not good with DSA politics and stuff. And then he just gradually just started getting blackity black. I'm black, y'all. Like on them and <laughs> and and Middleton. Like you know, he, he did he did the switch up. Oh yeah, yeah I, mean, I, I felt I kind of felt bad for him because they kind of just kind of kicked him to the curb real quick. And I was like, what? yeah, he got, he got his wake up call pretty bad, you know. And uh, <laughs> and I felt and, and the reason I felt bad was because when he did get Milton, I really could fuck with what he was saying, even though before I didn't like uh, him kind of doing all that class reductionism all the right, time. Right. Right. But yeah, yeah, he he uh, got like, pretty militant. He was even talking about like uh, armed struggle, and he was talking about <laughs> Tokyo and all this stuff. And a lot of people just did not seem to like it. And there was something very racialized about. This isn't the black person we signed up for. Where's Brianna? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't want to throw any shade, but yeah, no, no, no. 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 I actually like Brianna. I think yeah, yeah, I, yeah, 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 yeah. Me, me, me too. Me too. Dude, there is so much room in the black left. There's definitely room for both those people. I will yeah, take yeah. Brianna and RL. RL on my team like there's room for both of them i just want there also to be room for me no i hear you i hear you the other black left it's not going to sound like the white left one it's going to talk like white people like talk to white people as if they're white people and it's not going to sound the same on immigration it's it's not going to be xenophobic but it's not going to sound the same (laughs) no 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 it's it's true it's It's not going to reduce black issues to just criminalization we're gonna, we're gonna, like, we gotta talk about good jobs. So it's not gonna be concerned with legalizing marijuana as much as it is like making sure black, you know, men have real money. So <laughs> it's not going to, it's gonna reject. It's gonna talk about reparations <laughs> in like trillion yeah. dollar terms. Yeah, it, it's not just gonna be uh, white leftism, but spoken by a black person, right? Because, because then you know, and this is again like no disrespect to Adolf Reed, but you know, Adolf Adolf Reed kind of just tells them what they already want to hear to right. a large a large degree, you know. And right. uh, there's like like people just think like white left like leftism is just like white leftism, and then if you're a black leftist, you're supposed to just parrot kind of like their talking points. But there's a whole history of uh, black leftism that's done by 
black thinkers who have uh, taken like a lot of Marx, a lot of socialist thought, but reconfigured it for, you know, the diaspora, for a specific diaspora issues and right. have come up with their own line of thinking. And I feel like a lot of uh, white leftists don't appreciate the idea that black leftists have their own tradition, black Marxism that uh, has been formulated by them. Like, like there's like they think a black leftist is just supposed to study the same white thinkers that uh, they've yeah. studied. And but- it's going to, it's going to miss huge black problems. Not because they're black. It's also going to miss huge black gender problems. Cause it's going to assume black men and white men are the same sort of things. Cause they're men when really <laughs> like well, that's not going to be the case. Oh uh, no. And that's the thing that that's across the board with uh, black liberalism and black leftism is this kind of, I, I mean, I mean, as seen through the lens of white people that, right. you know, that the black community's dynamics are just the white community's dynamics yeah. just with a, a hip hop soundtrack or something. It's just, it's not the case. It's, it's simply, it's fundamentally on a deep way different. Unless you're talking about some like, everyone says like, well, you know, the poor guys in West Virginia. Yeah, maybe. Right. So yeah. maybe those guys in West Virginia, but not like, not a lot of them. But you know, also, yeah, you know, also, but going back to the reason why um, it's hard for the black left to um, really take off is that I think those two types have a tendency to be at war with each other. There's two types of black leftists. So it's not like there's a combined like black left that's really, I mean, I think one type of. Um, well, the thing is. Yeah. The 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 black left that acts like the, that is pretty much the white left in blackface is like paid to kind of manage the radical black left. Yeah, and which which doesn't work. So they just end up at each other's throats most right. of the time. You know, and I think it's kind of the problem because the white left has kind of created like a little machine for themselves that yeah. has worked. You know, and you not know, all of them are bad people. I could yeah, work with yeah. white like yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, I'm to be clear. Like, I'm friends, and I work with a lot of them. Yeah. You know, I've appeared. I'm just not going to work for them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> work for black people. Yeah. No, no, ex- exactly. Like, you know, I'm thinking like of coalitions. I don't think about yeah. being subsumed into your project. You know, but yeah, but I feel like the black left doesn't kind of have that. Like, you know, like like Jacobin and these podcasts and all these things. They kind of have gotten together like Voltron, and I think um, <laughs> black radicals don't really do that. They're kind of at each other's throats. Well, between... I mean, they can afford plane trips to see each other, right? Like, yeah, true, <laughs> true. Like, I see, you know, I see Bhaskara, Sanka, uh, the Jacobin guys, like, in New York and in uh, D.C. And then I see, I know Nate Robinson's based in Louisiana, but I see him in D.C. on things and California on things. And Oh, yeah, he, he was just in New York a couple of months <laughs> ago. I, I, was, I was supposed to meet him when he came to New York. Someone told me, hey, uh, Nate Robinson's in town. But he's only in town for a couple of days. He's going to be somewhere somewhere else, and I didn't get to meet him. But yeah, I mean, they move around. They, <laughs> well, they, yeah, that that takes money. <laughs> like, yeah. so I mean, we don't have travel budgets like that. We don't even have marketing budgets. I mean, but it is interesting because um, look at look at what happened with with the, with the Michael Bloomberg thing, Benjamin Dixon, and oh, the, Mi- yeah, the Michael Bloomberg thing. But Ben's been hustling, man. For Ben's years. Been, no, no, but Ben has been hustling. Ben has been grinding. He's uh, he's actually going to be in the show um soon to talk about the Bloomberg thing, but. He had that one thing that really um, got him a lot of exposure and his follower count like shot up, got all eyes on him. And he's 
seems to be like trying to capitalize like he on this. I, I wish the best for him yeah same same here <laughs> but but like people will look at that and think hey man that was like a lucky break but he's been grinding for like years you know years. like yeah years. yeah he's been grinding it's not like an overnight or whatever thing you know he uh he was grinding until something uh hit and it was this and like you know yeah. more power to him but and he, i don't know yeah. how big tim wise is getting but like uh, tim black tim Bo- tim black but he's yeah. trying and he's grinding but he's been grinding for years too it's just a matter of time before he hits yeah exactly exactly but like but, it but, might be a decade yeah but you know it's not it's not the same as like this kind of overnight success thing where it's like you pop out the gate and you're just a uh, like i feel like white people have the numbers where they can it's easier to be just uh out the gate um yeah. even if you know, stroke of luck, right place, right time type of thing. But I think it doesn't really happen no, very often for I mean, uh, black people. growing, like, like Yvette's growing as fast as she can. I mean, but like what the rising crew went from, you know, 20,000 subscribers to 300,000 subscribers in probably six months. Which, which crew is that? Rising, uh, you know, Crystal Ball and uh, oh, and, uh, so, uh, oh man, uh, they grew that because Crystal Ball, someone I, I didn't hear about like six months ago, suddenly no. I can't stop here, I can't stop hearing about her. No, well, she's oh, great. No. Oh, yeah, uh, oh no, oh, but take an example of like Chapel Trap House, like, like they came, they exploded, go. they exploded out the gate, you know. Yeah, uh, I don't actually listen to them, but I know a lot of people do. Yeah, I mean, honestly, uh, this podcast basically got started because of them because I appeared on their show. Okay. And then um because I appeared in their show, um That's like the people... Oprah book club. Like it gives you <laughs> Yeah, basically. That's that's really that's you know, really, really what it is. Like uh like a lot of people ask me to do uh, my own show and I think it wouldn't have um started out as fast as it as it did without that boost. You know? How many people do they have? They're either number one or number two on Patreon. So like, how many Patreons are we talking about? No, I mean, uh, you know, the whole side of Patreon? Yeah. They're either number one or number two. They've been number one, like, like the biggest money-making thing on Patreon. So that means they have like thousands of people giving them five bucks a month? I don't like to pocket watch, you know? But if you ask me the question directly, if you ask me the question directly, then I have to answer. So All I'll, right, I'll so tell you, how many people? I'll, are... I'll tell you right now. I'll, I'll tell you right now. It's, it's, uh, it's on the page. Hold on. I'll tell you. Um, it makes a hundred and sixty-eight, no, hundred and sixty-nine thousand a month. Um, okay, that's thirty-seven thousand patrons. Right. So you know, across so you know, twelve months, um, it's close to two million. Okay, so that's a good yeah. size staff, and all the equipment works. Yeah, and uh, so do they produce a show every day? Every uh, no, they do twice a week. They also do a lot of live shows. They do Twitch streams and stuff. But they are uh, they're very professional. They um well yeah. Yeah, can... yeah, they do it every um week, twice a week like on uh, clockwork. They get the um show turned around. It's like me for example, I, I still got to do like a day job, you know, and <laughs> we finally got a producer just because but it's not even that we can really afford a producer, but it's more like I was like I rather just pay for it now, just eat it than do and... it all nighter before it's supposed to come out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then the hope is on the back end as it grows, the producer will become more cost effective but yeah like right now the producer actually probably makes more than me you know as far as uh yeah yeah but it was one of those things where it's like uh i'm gonna have to do it and even then it's hard to get it out twice every week but it's it's um so one thing i always tell people like i know a lot of people kind of want this kind of idealized 
black media figure or whatever in these spaces. But I, I hate to say it, but I kind of understand why a lot of black people have to show. I, I understand why a lot of them in this blue check media space, right. even though like I can't do it and I could tell like you can't do it. And, you know, as far as like, like, I feel like you're like me and that if you had to look like your people in the face, you would hate. Oh, uh, I can do it. Yeah, I couldn't. I couldn't do it. But I, do it. I understand why a lot of people, uh, yeah, do. I mean, there's a part of me that thinks if I was smart, I would. I would do it. But I just, I don't have this. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not really built that way. I can't. Well, I can't that's do it. Uh, so. Once again, about the Pete Buttigieg, he is built that way. He's one of those guys who will say and do anything even though he knows it's wrong and i guess when i look at him i just i went to college we're about the same age i just feel like i went to college with like 17 different versions of him a lot of people say that a lot of people say like a lot of people have a hatred of him that is personal and i think it's because they know a pete they know and that's why people his age don't like him exactly (laughs) like like people like the old white people like him people his age they don't like him and then people on the left his age know exactly what kind of he's the kid that boomers like wanted their kids to be (laughs) be, you know yeah we just know him as he's the kid who snitched yeah exactly (laughs) he he, he reminds me just a dated reference but he kind of reminds me kind of like eddie haskell type from leave it to beaver you know that that guy is like uh when wally and beaver's parents were around he's like hello mrs uh cleaver hello and then you know when when the parents were gone he was like a little uh sneak yep yeah yeah he so uh reminds me of that totally and you know I feel like Obama was like the black version of that. Like, like he was yeah. somebody that he could, he was ready to be and do whatever he had to be. <laughs> yeah. There was some power. reason, like as much as I, I mean, I was never, I worked for Obama in what, 2006 when he was a Senator in uh, Chicago. And that's when I decided that like, this guy is not the guy. Uh, but I don't, I didn't, I never hated him. I'm tired of him, but I never hated him the way that, like, I do not, I cannot, will not, could never vote for Pete. Screw that guy. Like, yeah, no. yeah, yeah. He, yeah he's, no. um, he's something else. Uh, any other tidbits from the memoir that you, well, uh, the memoir is good because, and I think Robinson nailed this, but you get this in a memoir. South Bend is 25% black and none of them are doing well. <laughs> like, it's all poor black people. It's not like Gary, Gary, Indiana, but it's, um, it's where the Jackson, where the Jacksons are from. Yeah, where the Jacksons are from. And that is a depressing place. If you I hear that. I hear it's like, yeah. Yeah. You, that's, that's, a, that's why people will I always tell people, like, no matter what Michael Jackson uh, did to his face, like, that guy was always black because yeah. you did not come from Gary, Indiana and not <laughs> have that in your bones. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was, my, Gary, Indiana is black, poverty, d- depressing, all the way all the way down. And uh, and South Bend for black people is the same way. He went to a white flight private school and pretty much he's been stepping over black poverty his entire life. And the and worst he, thing about it is that... Uh, and it was all they, preventable. He doesn't mm-hmm. have like a critique of it. And one of the worst things that's happened, and this is an example of uh, liberal racism and gay racism, is that it's become easy for people to just reflexively make his lack of black support into black homophobia uh, based on nothing. Like, like no one has shown the black people from his town, um, you know, doing like hate speech against him or no. chanting like slurs. Like people just started saying it. And I used to ask people online, I'm like, where are you getting that they hate him because he's gay? And like, well, you know, the black community. I'm like, you no. can look at the data. You can look at the things that he's done to the black community. They're like, they don't even bother even looking at the situation on the ground. They just kind of just default to that just because 
And that this is why I think a lot of these black uh, social justice influencers are really damaging because these people have been giving them the ammunition about, hey, oh, we're black, black and black trust us. Whole, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's become very easy for these people to repeat these things because they're like, hey, you're activists and they're not my activists. They're not your activists, but because we share skin color, they're supposed to be our activists. They're spokespeople that no one black has appointed. It's, it's white gatekeepers <laughs> who, appointed, who appointed them as our managers, you know? Yeah. But yeah. And yeah. The I, thing about, well, real quickly, and Tommy's book actually makes the arguments pretty well. The thing about black homophobia is as wide as it might be, and it, it's not really clear it's that wide, it's definitely, it's, um, it's like the thinnest homophobia right so as soon as like as soon as a black guy meets a black gay guy it's gone <laughs> like, yeah like it's the thinnest the most plastic homophobia because uh because we're so like for a lot of for a lot of internal dynamics we're not in a power position so when you meet someone who's other oppressed and they and we see that they're a person it's like all of the the we have no vested interest in holding on to some like version of masculinity that isn't our life anyway right so it's not like there's not like some black patriarch who's like really gender policing and making sure that black guys are with black women and black women are with black like like that's just not a dynamic in the black community because black guys aren't patriarchal we don't have power over any institutions so any sort of residual homophobia goes away as soon as you meet like a black gay person so it's and, it's the most flimsy homophobia even if it's superficially wide it's not deep and another thing is the optics of the black community i think this is a reason why i always say you can't really just judge the black community by the white community like some of the things that black people say to each other like the dozens uh roasting yeah, and all this yeah. stuff from white people, that would be like you know, uh, it's from a it's place like of a, power. Yeah, and and it's and it's like major slander and stuff. Yeah. But black people have like a for better or worse, like a very kind of tough love way of uh, relating yeah. to each other, or lots of roasting, lots of you know whatever. And it's um, I think it's another thing that because not always saying that things are justified, but it's not. It's not. It's just words. It's yeah. It's not. It's not. Because we don't have any power, and we've never had any power, so it's understood that it's not, it's not, it's not that. So yeah, the problem with Pete Buttigieg isn't, isn't anything about him being gay. It's the fact that he sent bulldozers after black houses in poor parts of uh, South Bend when he wanted to gentrify the neighborhood. So he found he did it the way all mayors gentrify. He finds some sort of code violation. He gives you you know three chances to fix the code violation. Um, but it's always going to be more expensive than you can afford, and so he sends the bulldozers. After and he's him. had a and he's had a bad history of just being very bad to his black constituency, yeah. like even even in person. There's like stories about him just being <laughs> bad to black crowds, or like you know having and, black people in his town like come up to him and he like brushes them off and yeah. things like that. Because it's what he's been used. To. It's what he was grown into. That's his education. You gotta understand. Like like I said, the town is 25 percent black. None of them are doing well. I'm I'm sure all of them are Democrats. So it's not like it's a it's not an insignificant part of his base. He was just taught that these people aren't actually important people. Because all of the problems you have if you're in South Bend and you're dealing with the black community in South Bend, they're all politically preventable problems. If you have a serious you should have a serious critique of the racial politics in your city, which he didn't develop. He's a very smart guy, he can play he can speak seven languages. Didn't he I remember seeing a uh, an interview with him I want to say a month ago about how like well he didn't know racial segregation was so bad. Man, you went to a white flight private school because your parents did not want to send you to 
to the black public school. Like, how did you not know? So he's purposefully ignoring like black degradation for his entire life. And that's why black people don't trust him. It's nothing, it's got nothing to do with how he likes his sex and everything to do with the fact that he's been stepping over black people, whether he was at Harvard or um, whether he's in South Bend for his entire life, not just adult life from his kid. He was groomed into it. And uh, in his book, this becomes very clear because he talks everything, talks about everything about everything except racial justice. When I'm sure when your town is 25% black, it's a problem staring you in the face. Uh, Boy George from the Culture Club. Boy George, the 80s yeah, yeah, pop star for the Culture Club did. Oh, I'm doing for the for the, for the listeners. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he tweeted about uh, Mayor Pete and his problems with black homophobia. It's like, motherfucker, you're in <laughs> England. Like, <laughs> you're in England, you're a boomer. I think he's Australian, like, what? but yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, wait, oh, is is Boy George Australian? I, I'm gonna check right now. No, I'm, or... I'm pretty sure. That, well, well, if he if he is, they're a UK band. I know they. they... <laughs> oh, oh no, no, his website's Boy George UK. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's. Okay, uh... okay so yeah, he's yeah, a... yeah, yeah, yeah. He's born in Bexley, the United Kingdom, right? So I think that's. Uh... Okay. Yeah, yeah, he's he's British, but yeah, yeah. So so I mean, like, dude, dude, you're you're British, and you're like either like early late boomer, early Gen X, like like. Why the hell do you know about South Bend? Like, like, like you know, but like that's how bad the PR for uh, black people is. Like, even in, you know, like he's confident, like weighing in that, uh, that, like, oh yeah, it's homophobia. The black, black, black people hit him because he's because they're homophobic. I'm like, man, you don't. Yeah, and Boston Globe had a great article for anybody who's listening who wants to read it. But it's uh, Boston Globe had something by a writer Renee Graham. And the title was uh, Pete Buttigieg has little black support. Don't blame homophobia. And the subheading is his weak record on civil rights is the main barrier for <laughs> black voters. And I was glad for that article, especially in the mainstream major publication at like the Boston Globe. But Good. I hated that it had to be even uh, done because his campaign released it like his campaign was the one who pushed that narrative. Oh, I'm sure. And I'm sure it was like Obama in his Muslim garb where Hillary yeah. didn't leak it directly, you know, but <laughs> you could tell it passed through like several of her hands. Yeah. Ha- yeah. Several hands before it got. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I don't think it was spontaneous. I think he definitely like leaked it without having to say it himself for sure. Um, but I wanted to talk about uh, you had an article about explaining democratic socialism. Yes. And um, I wanted you to kind of yeah, just kind of explain what democratic socialism is. Because a lot of people have that. Uh, I think Mario just joined us. I think it's a good time. Hey, hey, Mario, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you guys. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you sound okay, really clear. Great, actually. great. Yeah. Um, wanted to ask a question. You came in just in time. We were was talking about um, what is democratic socialism. Uh, it was an article that uh, you had about it. But I also wanted you to talk about, um, is it quote unquote real socialism? Because depending on who you ask, if you ask some of these uh, like dirtbag left people, it's the <laughs> ultimate socialism. But if you ask some radicals, it's just um, um, what, what do they call it? Uh, regulated capitalism, you know. And should black people support it? Yeah, What's that's a question that's been floating around behind? for you know for the last few months too. I think someone asked uh, AOC that. Was it Charlemagne might have asked her that a couple of days ago when she was on the breakfast which, club? Which part? What exactly is democratic no, I mean, socialism? And you know, she oh, okay. would be something in, in ideology that black people adapt and things of that such. So, uh, so it actually has a, a variegated history. There's a great book that came out actually last year about the idea of socialism, and it's actually a few different 
things. I think the most compelling version isn't about seizing all means and nationalizing all industries and all of that. No, the most compelling version centers individual rights, centers individual rights, but not just property rights. So I'm going to tell a little story and you can edit it as you feel. Uh, so there's a great book called Private Government by Elizabeth Anderson. She's at the University of Michigan, came out this year, maybe. It came out this year. And it, it kind of goes into the forms of tyranny that the founders didn't really think about. Right, So in 1776, it's pre-industrial society. Remember, the cotton gin doesn't come up until 1793. So it's pre-industrial. All of the theories we have about like factories and industry governments and, and, and industrialization that you read in like The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, the, pin, the famous pin factory he talks about, about how factories make things more efficient and all that, that he was talking about a factory of 10 people, 10 people. That's a factory. Right. And you have to understand that a small business in the United States right now, the government says it's 500 employees and fewer. Right. So like in terms of scale, um, the factory, the industrial life of the, the, the colonists was 10 people max. Because you have to understand in America, you have a functionally infinite amount of land as long as you're willing to kill a few Native Americans. And um, you don't have to worry about industrial pollution. And so the, the idea was that obviously every citizen as a landowning white guy is going to be self-employed. Obviously, we're going to be a nation full of people who are self-employed. And this goes all the way through Lincoln. Lincoln's got this great speech about like, yeah, sure, you're going to be an employee or an apprentice when you're young. But then, you know, by the time you become an adult and what it is to be an adult is to like have your own tools and have your own shop and be self-employed. And so you have to understand that fundamentally the um, Constitution was not organized for a nation of employees. So the tyranny that they were worried about, the tyranny that the founders were worried about is like Parliament, right? It's King George ripping people out of the colonies and shipping them to England to stand trial for some crime or taxes that were levied by a parliament, some foreign power, some foreign government that kind of tells us what to do. That's tyranny. They didn't have to worry about the kind of tyranny that we deal with, tyranny of your boss, right? Because right now we have a market society where uh, you have to be employed gainfully in order to actually participate. And since we're an advanced industrial economy, that means you're probably going to work for somebody. 95% of the workforce works for somebody else. That wasn't the America that the founders had in mind because there are economic conditions for political independence. You need to be, you need some sort of economic independence. You need some sort of economic security in order to have political independence, or you'll just be a tool of your boss. And that was one of the reasons why the founders were a little bit kind of a little bit slow to appreciate someone who wasn't owning property and wasn't self-employed because they were worried that their vote and their political power would simply be a a tool of their their employer, right? So now, now we're still tools of our employers. We just now vote <laughs> as tools of our employers. So that we still don't have, we don't have the kind of rights that are adequate for a nation of employees. So we need to start talking about labor rights. We need to start talking about collective bargaining as a right. And since the uh, founders also didn't take uh, take uh, spouses and married couples seriously, we need to talk about, no, your spouse isn't your property. Your spouse is a whole another person with their own set of rights. So we need to start talking about family rights. You know what else the founders didn't have to talk about or worry about? Industrial pollution. They didn't have to worry about lead in the water because we didn't have any like big industry polluters. So they didn't have to worry about environmental rights. 
So, like, there were all these fears of tyranny and oppression that the founders just weren't serious about. They didn't have to take seriously because he had an infinite amount of land. And since we didn't consider black people real workers, they didn't have to worry about, like, oh, yeah, employees. How do we make sure that they have the economic conditions so that they can be politically independent? So, um... First of all, when you talk about rights, rights are simply how freedom gets externalized into the world. Rights are, um, if, if I don't have, I can't uh, assert my rights to my arm when I'm dealing with a lion, right? There's no, I can't assert my rights in nature because nature doesn't recognize me as a person and it's not going to respect me and my claim to say what I want and do what I want. So rights are simply how freedom gets into the world and it's about mutual recognition. And property is a right and it's a right that we should take seriously, but it's not the only right. I think a big problem that happens with the discourse right now, and I think a lot of it happens from social media and the dumbing down of stuff, kind of the looseness of Tumblr and stuff, that rights and privilege, uh, like like before you get to property, I just want you to differentiate. Between rights and privileges, right? Yeah, Yeah. I think we live in a world now where people are treating rights like privileges and privileges like rights. And it's it's, uh, confusing a lot of stuff. Right. So real quickly, the ready distinction is a privilege is something that you can do, but other people can't, but you can still do it. Like going to a private club um, is a privilege for the people who are members and not everyone's a member. You can't demand your way into a private club, but a right is something that everyone should be able to exercise and is recognized as being able to exercise equally. Right. So um, a privilege is something that people of a certain you know, designation can do, but other people can't. A right is something that everyone can do equally. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, because because when I was watching the debate, one thing I noticed was people were treating, uh, they were attacking Bernie Sanders, and I realized the major disconnect that was happening in the conversation was everybody on that stage besides Bernie Sanders was treating healthcare like a privilege, yeah. whereas he was talking about it like it was are right. And that's where they were kind of talking past each other. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I like that he's rescuing the, the rights discourse about healthcare because, yeah, you can't, it's, I, I, I shouldn't be punished for getting a bad diagnosis. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like part of, for, for my ability to exercise any man, of my other rights. That affected me in a very real need, way. Uh, yeah. Just not that long yeah. ago, man. Um, I was actually out trying to purchase some life insurance and um, yeah, <laughs> I had no idea that like, there's this brick wall that you hit when you're shopping for life insurance. When you turn 40, all of a sudden it just becomes that much more difficult to to get life insurance. But anyway, I was I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, at that point, it's it's it. Were you going to say? I'm sorry. Go on. Go on. Oh, okay. I was diagnosed. No, you're yeah, diagnosed, I was diagnosed with rheumatoid, with rheumatoid arthritis, arthritis about five years ago, and I uh, just got a new job and everything. So I was trying to sign up for the company's life insurance policy. And they denied me. I'm like, damn, really? <laughs> He's like, okay. <laughs> I got the yeah, arthritis. Right? It's arthritis, <laughs> man. I'm not, you know, like, what, what the hell, man? But uh, it was it was, it was, was eye-opening. Uh, and then I started shopping around for some rates at some other places. And uh, I mean, that's going to screw up your inheritance. Right, your exactly, <laughs> man. I'm like, well, you know, shit, like, you know what, what am I supposed to do? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? I'm just going to die, right? What I was going to say is... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. What I was going to say before uh, was that those actuarial tables, they treat 40 like it's just a countdown right, to exactly. death. Like, like, once you hit 40, they just treat it. Because I, I had to do life insurance. I had to do life insurance too. And I, I had, had the same thing where they just treated it like, uh, okay, everything from this point on, you're going to die uh, any day. You know, it's just like, <laughs> yeah. 
It's like, <laughs> it's like you're 40 going on 85. It's just, I can't believe, yeah. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And I feel, I feel low key, man. They put race into it too. Cause I'm pretty sure actuarial that. tables yeah. are real different yeah. for black people. Like, like 40 for a black guy probably is like That's, 70. That is like, true. Yeah. That is true. It's not, Based not on yeah. yes. but, but they're not going to tell you. I, I'm sick. They probably yeah. would, you know, uh, because. <laughs> well, it's illegal to tell you that, but they find right, all the other exactly. questions. You know, because uh, of the assumption of the, the issues with high blood pressure that our community Talk has to me about your sickle have. cell. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Do you have high blood pressure? Yeah. It's just like, man. <laughs> or, or you never know. They, they might incorporate your region because because if your region is mostly black, they can say, oh, you people go. from your region, you know, <laughs> yeah. tend to, uh, you know, die yes. at this rate. So there's a geographical part to this test, but the, ge- the geographical part takes Could be, yeah. incorporates your, your race indirectly. You never you, you never know. know. These people are sneaky fuckers, man. You know, one thing about medical bills, too, they're overwhelming. Yeah. You know, if you have a medical problem, it can just, it overwhelms everything else in a way that we're just not honest about. Yeah. You could save for 10 years and then get wiped out with a cancer diagnosis. Yeah. Like, then why save? It makes it money make useless. It useless. You know, that, that reminds it, me of an interesting conversation I overheard the other day. I was watching, uh, was it Vlad TV, I think, and uh, the comedian Godfrey was on there. And he was talking about this, uh, you know, this doctor that he knows that sees people, you know, when they're at their worst, you know, after they've gone through um, the chemotherapy and all the other treatments. And when all else fails, people turn to this guy, but he charges, you know, some insane <laughs> amount of money. And uh, Vlad was like, you know, I don't like that. You know, he's charging $14,000 for these people to see him and this, that and the other. And he was like, you know, they should have insurance doesn't come. And then Godfrey was like, well, that's the entire problem. That's the fault of the insurance companies. They don't let you, they don't cover, um, you know, exotic medical treatment or experimental treatments or anything like that. So, you know, people with, you know, it's as a last resort, a lot of people will try anything to extend their lifespans, you know. Yeah. Spend anything. anything, So, yeah. On all of it. Yeah. And, and, and you're not allowed to get anything preventative. Like, yeah. like there's a lot of things where I'm like, hey, uh, can I do this or that or whatever? And they're like, oh, no, we don't test for that yet. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why not? It goes, oh, because you're not in the risk stage. But I'm like, okay, so I could have it. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to wait till I'm at my optimum right. risk. And I guess because... They want to save as much money as they can for the insurance, so the insurance won't cover it until it's uh, in the high risk mm-hmm. stage for you. So if you want to do preventative, there are these people who are all into that Tim Ferriss shit and that Joe Rogan stuff and that optimized health type of stuff, where uh, it'd be like a, rich, a lot of rich Silicon Valley yeah. type guys who will be purchasing out of pocket all these crazy private tests, like thousands of mm-hmm. dollars uh, through the internet. You know, you walk into these service centers because you know i was curious i was reading like the tim ferris the four hour body and all this stuff and usually like, like when you go to the doctor and you're like under 40 or just turned 40 you get the most basic test covered yeah. by insurance and even if you ask even if you say hey can i pay a little extra money it's like no we don't do that but if you read like the stuff these the silicon valley guys do and stuff it'll be stuff like there's like all these different types of cholesterol. Um, there's like the, the big fluffy cholesterol, the small cholesterol, the LDL, the HLDL, all, all this stuff. And you need all the information to really know what your cholesterol is saying. Without that fine-tuned breakdown, oh. uh, you're basically kind of like reading tea leaves. Like, mm. like, you know, like I could have a high cholesterol, but my high cholesterol, even, even if it's a so-called bad cholesterol, that bad cholesterol breaks down to two subtypes. 
if I have the big fluffy cloudy one versus the other kind, I'm actually still have good cholesterol. So you can have a high cholesterol and be fine. But the insurance company is not going to know that this is going to have the big number that they gave you. Um, is, is what I'm saying that like, makes sense? Yeah, and I just right? knew it couldn't so, be that so, simple. So, Damn it. You know, I thought if your cholesterol was good and your and your blood pressure was okay, you were straight. Now you're telling me that it's different types of cholesterol and it's even subcategories of both categories. For example, I, I have a, I, I personally have a really high cholesterol, but um, is it an, is it a genetic? My, I fa- I'm not sure, but but basically, um, I used to eat a lot of fish on and, and oh, uh, fish okay. oil that did my cholesterol up. My dad used to know a doctor. The first doctor was like, hey, "Son, you're gonna die." You know, <laughs> basically, he was just like, you know, but he just gave me like, the basic test. And then uh, my dad, uh, R.I.P. He knew this doctor that taught at Columbia um, Medical Center, right? He knew like all like the deeper stuff. Uh, as a favor, like he ran the test and he said, "Your son has." One of the best cholesterol, blood lipid things I've ever seen in my life. Like, like this high number means nothing if you don't break it down to these smaller numbers, to to like the different types of numbers. It doesn't mean anything. And then he used my test results in his oh, medical wow. class <laughs> as an example of an inc- of an incredibly good. You know, he's like, like, what does your son eat? I used to, I was, I was a pescatarian. All I was eating was fish, oh. and I was all those omega threes. But an insurance company would have used the, the big number. Yeah, yeah, the dumbed down version. You know, of of the test, the cut corners version. That's the one that you, all your doctors give you. But okay, so say you're somebody with a lot of money or all this stuff, or like a, a yuppie or something, or someone like Tim Ferriss who's willing to spend thousands of dollars private tests to do these breakdowns. You might be able to go to your insurance company. And say, hey, look at this test that I got done. Not the regular one, that, you know, by the doctor, but look at this one. Or maybe they can do better preventative stuff. Like, like, like what I'm trying to say is, there's a lot of stuff with money. Right. I think people don't even and realize then, then, the benefits and stuff it, it can kind of get you. You know, even with things that you take for granted, like you and I might have insurance, but that guy with the with the with the lot of money spent out of pocket, he might be getting better healthcare than you are, even right. with your insurance. And then there's another unintended consequence of that. Whereas if you don't have the money to get the tests and and, and the more advanced tests and things like that, or even to go get a second opinion from another doctor, like you were you were describing you were fortunate enough to do. Um, the guy told you initially that you were going to die, you know, because your pressure was so, so they'll give you, they'll tell you that and then put you on all types of uh, cholesterol medications. Statins. Right. He was, he was going to give me statin drugs. He yeah. was going to give me statin drugs. And um, see, see, cause okay, this is what people know, right? There's a good, there's a good cholesterol, right? And then LDL is called the bad cholesterol, right? There's two types of LDL. That's what they want to tell you. Only one type of LDL is bad. The other one is just big and it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so so um so there's something called I think it's called like HLDL and another type of LDL. If you don't have so um that plus your triglycerides, all this stuff, the triglyceride has to have a ratio against the bad LD because I learned all this from my scare, because they're gonna put me on statins and everything, and yeah. I was in my twenties. Jeez. Yeah, and if and if I tried to get um insurance with that or life insurance Forget or anything, it. I would have been paying yeah. at the Wazoo. <laughs> so, so so basically, being poorer, I would have had a worse. Being poorer, I would have had a worse type of blood test. But but then on top of that, my expenses would have been higher. Right. I would have paid more for insurance yeah. than a rich guy. So there's all kinds of different uh, consequences for that. Uh, bad information and then not being able yeah, to Yeah, people really underestimate. Wow. Exactly. People underestimate all the very little advantages that having money gives you that 
kind of a ripple effect that just ripple out. Mm, that's a lot to think about. Um, I know, I know. I, we went way out track because uh, I, I mean, you were on well, the verge of talking about property. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, with, okay. With so Democratic property, socialism. Yeah. Well, real quickly, a property right isn't actually a relationship between a person and a thing. It's a relationship between a person and another person. Right. It's a it's a relationship of mutual recognition. So if I'm out to dinner with you and I go to the bathroom, you're not going to just eat my food. <laughs> you're going to recognize it as mine, even though it's not in my possession. And that's a distinction between possession and property. Possession is I can hold it and I can keep you from it. Property is I can leave the room and you're still not going to touch it because you recognize it as mine, even when I don't possess it. You can still possess my property. So a property right is just a, is a form of mutual recognition between people about stuff. It's not really about a relationship between a person and stuff. It's about a person and other people relating to their stuff. Does that make a little bit of sense? Yeah, I, yeah, totally. So. All right, so um, property, property is a kind of mutual recognition, but that's not the only kind of mutual recognition. That's not the only kind of right. That's the o- not the only kind of freedom. And without rights, you have to understand, without rights, that's the difference between the U.S. or any sort of nation like this and the purge. Right. The purge The purge is what happens when you get rid of all rights. There's no mutual recognition. It's just what I could possess when I can possess it. And that's not real freedom because you can't actually do anything because you don't want to go out because people might kill you. So when people talk about, well, I should be able to do what I want, liberty and all that. Well, that's the purge. You don't want the purge. You want rights. At least rights to your own body, but you want rights also to other stuff. You want people to keep their promises when they promise things to you um because without that then like you can't make plans so a lot of freedom is about just being able to make plans and enact them and in order to make plans and enact them you need people to actually like respect what they say to you and respect you you need them to recognize you in a certain way but not just about property also in the workplace you need rights on the workplace. I need to be able to, you know, negotiate Absolutely. my conditions and, you know, negotiate my wages. And just because you work for somebody doesn't mean you're a slave. It means you're an employee. Yep. So you need rights that are appropriate for an employee. The founders didn't have any sort of conception of this or any, didn't take any of this seriously because they figured, you know, all adult citizens are going to be self-employed anyway. Uh, so it doesn't matter. And that means you need to actually say in your working conditions, not just the ability to leave those working conditions. Because in America, everybody needs a job because we're a market society and that's fine. But that means you need like jobs need to be the kind of things that promote and secure freedom, right? Because there's this idea that, well, if I don't like my job, I can just go someplace else. No, not when that other place right. is just as bad. That's, that doesn't solve the problem. I, in that book, Private um, Private Government, she has this story about an Amazon warehouse where they didn't want to st- uh, they didn't want to install an HVAC system. So what they did was um, it was just cheaper than installing an HVAC system, no air conditioning. Instead, they just parked ambulances and medevacs like outside of the warehouse. So when someone fainted, you they gotta be to kidding me. Oh, <laughs> oh, just, no. Wow. <laughs> that, that is barbarism. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I don't want to get rid of Amazon because I like being able to click on things and it being yeah. delivered to me, but we got to unionize it. Right. Um, so that the workers have some sort of say in their working conditions. And also, I don't want to get rid of Walmart. I, like, I like having the world where Walmart exists. Now that it does exist, I'm like, that's fine. But it's not appropriate that the Walmart uh, employees, a lot of them yeah, are on yeah. food stamps. Yeah. Right? So if you have a Walmart employee on food stamps, I guess I can justify it. But then don't let me go to Wikipedia and find out that there are four Waltons, each worth over $50 billion. <laughs> right? So, like, we're subsidizing those four Waltons. 
Because food stamps come out and of they my won't tax let money. you work more than forty I, I, hours I, I, in a week or whatever weird system they have over there. Yeah, and then they keep. Well, yeah, they got this weird thing. I, apparently, with your right. work schedules, where you just give them like sixty hours where you're just kind right. of available, and then they'll call you in or right. send you home. Yeah. Based mm. on like what they need, and that that yeah, <laughs> and they probably they probably try to spread it around. They probably try to spread it around in a way that they don't have to give time and a half or the least amount of time yeah. and a half that yeah. they can. Yeah, yeah, you're just vaguely available, and like they're like, oh, you can come in, and then an hour and a half later they yep. can send you home. Yeah, you know, so you're talking about the rights and everything, but how does democratic uh, socialism, socialism uh, so, um, uh, offer the solution? Well, democratic socialism puts all of those, all of that. Um, all of that vulnerability under political control. All of that, you know, because if you don't work, if you're not uh, organized at that Amazon warehouse, and if you can't negotiate the conditions, then you're just vulnerable when Pete Buttigieg, the McKinsey of management consultant, goes and says, well, you know, we can cut off a little bit of your bottom line if 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 you get rid of this heating and cooling system and just park a ambulance out. So, like, you don't have power to negotiate that those working conditions you have to eat the vulnerability as workers right so socialism just socializes that vulnerability so it's like no it's not disproportionately the workers who eat the vulnerability we need that vulnerability managed um and 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 spread around all of the interested mm-hmm. parties right it's not just the management consultant who decides well you know if we just pollute this lake it's fine no we need that pollution if we're going to have it at all spread around to everybody yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) um like so we need to spread around the suck (laughs) because if you spread around the suck it turns out that we have industries that produce less suck because nobody wants suck Mm. but if you concentrate the suck and give it to the most vulnerable people then they don't even have the resources to fight Mm. back and they'll just privatize it i mean honestly i think the biggest form of privatization that's being weaponized that nobody talks about is all of the social anxiety and alienation that just gets shunted onto privacy and then it becomes like Mm -hmm. a mental health problem, right? Like, we privatize... Like, I think mental health has environmental causes, not necessarily, like, smog. I'm just talking about toxic relationships. Relationships with your boss, relationships with your spouse, relationships... Like, we just have a lot of toxic relationships and it makes people uh, uh, mentally unhealthy. But instead of trying to organize society to support and reinforce healthier relationships, including work relationships and marriages and all that stuff, schools and all that, all these kind of relationships. We just say, well, it's your fault. Go to a therapist and maybe you can talk it out and take a pill. Right. So like, instead of socializing that kind of illness as, and and thinking of it as having political antecedents or social antecedents, we just say it's a private thing. It's something that you can deal with, with your therapist it's not a problem that we have to deal with as a society. And I actually think, you know, a lot of a lot of drug use is self-medication. Oh, yeah. So instead, so criminalize, uh, decriminalizing it's good, but also we got to figure out why these people are self-medicating yeah. this way. Um, so, like, we need to think about how we socialize risk as opposed to privatize it and how we socialize vulnerability as opposed to just concentrate it in communities that can't fight back. Right? Now, honestly, the next... A wave of socialism, and you're going to hear it first. And maybe you in New York already know it because it's already kind of in New York a little bit, or it's being talked about in New York. Legal care, legal care. Oh, is that prepaid legal? Well, it's kind of like legal insurance, single payer legal insurance on the model of single payer healthcare, with the idea that we're a nation of laws, and as a nation of laws, you can't really like express your right and fight for your rights if you can't defend yes. them in court. 
So if you don't have access to a lawyer, you don't really have rights. Especially, especially labor. When the person, what's up? Especially labor. Labor is where a lot of black people get screwed. Where yeah, they can't, wage theft. Uh, yeah, yeah, wage theft, uh, unfair firings, employees. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, employment law I think is very underrated in terms of uh, how how it affects and keeps black people from uh, advancing. Like a lot of people get unfairly fired, then they have to scramble and get a new job. They're living check to check, much less find the money to uh, sue their old boss. Yeah, for for recompense. And you have to understand that black people are the highest unionized demographic. Mm. Well, the highest unionized demographic because. That's the only way we can keep a job. Not the only way, but like it's better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, it's it's yeah. better. The private market has never really absorbed black people and stigmatized communities in general at fair labor wages and working conditions. So if we're unionized, it's just one more way to, that we keep jobs. So yeah, we're the highest, and that's from the 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 labor statistics. That's you can just find that yeah. on Google. I had a quick uh, something related to that. Um, I remember reading an article not too long ago about how uh, this kind of shifted on the on the topic of black people working for unions because that's one of the most protective you know places we can get because the private sector doesn't do us any favors. Also, federal oh. employment, from what I remember reading, is is another avenue that a lot of black people take, particularly black women, where um, yeah. they started going into federal employment. If I remember correctly, it was either what was it the Veterans Administration? I want to say it's the VA that that hired you know a a large percentage of black people. Black people and black women, yeah. And I remember making this, uh, reading this article and they were talking about how that's one of the, if you really look at it, that's one of the places that a lot of conservatives, when they talk about cutting the size of government, they always talk about, we got to make government smaller. We got to make government smaller. We got to make government. And then when you see the areas that they try to cut from, it's always things going on with the VA. And and uh, it was another one. I man, I wish I had the article in front of me. I wanted to get it when you were coming on, and I, I couldn't find it. But um, anyway, so that that there's this. We work at TSA. Uh-huh. Every time I go to TSA, I'm always having that. Yeah, yeah, that's working. true. <laughs> that's true. There's a lot of them out here in, at, at uh, LAX too. Yeah. You know, if you ever want to know where all the black people are, just go to LAX, and you'll see a ton of them working. <laughs> working. Black yeah, men exactly. Working. But um, black men. So anyway, some of those some of those avenues of of working in the federal government are always areas that come under fire from um, conservatives. Um, do you remember? Did you have you seen anything with regard to research in that area? Like as far as the numbers of black people hired that work in federal government? Well, well, think about it. Where where when you think about black money, where you, mm-hmm. when you think about black money in the United States, only a handful of places. I grew up in Baldwin yep. Hills. You're from LA right now. I grew up in Baldwin Hills. Everybody talks about well, Baldwin Hills. You must be that must be fancy. No, my mom. Right. Was a single nurse. She bought a house in the seventies. I don't even know if they're still. I, I suspect there are still. Black oh yeah, people in Baldwin Hills, like, but I don't think there are black people moving. Yeah, into Baldwin Hills. Baldwin I think Hills. it's still eighty percent black or something like that. Right. Yeah. It's still like it's it's like so like that used to be like right. a black middle class place. But like my mom was just a nurse. And, and and she bought in the seventies. We can't. I can't. Of course, there, right? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, but the other the other place where people talk about, well, you know, there's black money. There's a real black middle class. Is Prince George's County yep. Yep. in mm-hmm. in DC? But you know why there's black money in Prince George's County at the community level? All, All those government, government jobs. jobs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All those government jobs. Those people retiring with those pensions, like, and then they're able to leave a little something yeah. to their buy a house. You know, leave a little something to the heirs after it's all said and done. Yeah, yeah, those are all government jobs. That's all government yeah. money. 
And because like that, the private sector doesn't do us favor. And we're very far. Like we just, we make one white um, boss nervous. That one, or one white, mm -hmm. you know, customer, boss's spouse nervous one time. Yeah. That's it. That's a wrap. Or we stand up for black people. I always say it's not that hard being black. It's hard, mm -hmm. but not that hard being black. Caring about other Whew. black people, though, that's, that's dangerous the, yeah, business. Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Man. <laughs> For sure. That's, that's, you take your life in your own hands caring about other black Boy, people. Though. I'll tell oh, you. Man. If, 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 you're willing, if you're willing to be apathetic, that, then it's not that hard. But if you want to throw other black people under the bus, you can actually do pretty well. That's like, true. Like, yeah. If you want to be in that workplace and be like the... Um, the snitch and the spy and other black yeah. people. Yeah, you can actually you can get, right. get, prom get promotions. <laughs> be, be okay. But if you actually care about like justice for your black coworkers or justice You're for black there. applicants or justice, no, there's no, no rule for you, man. No. Trust me, I know, man. <laughs> You're not a good fit. You're not a good fit. Right. This isn't working out. Y'all all are different. Yeah. So, I, so there are a lot of black people who've been fired for standing up yeah, for other black I'm, people. <clears throat> Yeah, I'm one of like yeah. Like, there's a lot of black people who've been stand who've been fired for standing up for black people. I remember I was telling this story to my friend. Um, I was a guy in grad school with. He was white, and he was like, "Yeah, I know what that's like, man." I remember one time I was fired for doing cocaine oh, in the no. bathroom. <laughs> but I said, "You have to, like, you that is nothing, nothing about all. what I'm talking about." Oh uh, uh, yeah, you yeah. You were doing I'm cocaine in the right? bathroom. You're a degenerate. <laughs> mm, yeah, I met a white I met a guy who was complaining about a place he worked, and he got fired for vaping in a shared office with some other people, and he was mad that his coworkers, I guess, told on him. It's like, but if he vapes in that office and they know and they don't say anything and it comes out that he vaped in the office and it comes out that um, they were in there and they gave him uh, quote unquote permission or said it was okay, they're all going to get fired. So I'm like, I don't condone workplace snitching, but I can understand why your coworkers are like, mm. we're not going down with this vaping fool. We can't even take an elevator to the lobby and vape in front of the building like a... Right. normal person but to him that yeah. was a major grievance and i was and like, i can I tell you it's a lot of horror um, stories man about black people trying to make it in private not to say that federal or government jobs are some type of panacea but you hear the hell that a lot of black folks go through working in the private sector especially when you hear a lot of stories oh, about yeah, black sure. women with their hair issues with that you gotta swat you gotta swat oh, yeah. a lot of shit yeah for sure in the private yeah. sector as a black person oh, 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 oh by the way by the way to be clear my story is about no no, no right i know guy. that i, I, I want to make sure that was clear in yeah. case yeah. it wasn't yeah. oh yeah that's what i'll make sure for listeners oh you were saying somebody was no i was good oh well yeah real quickly about the stuff you have to swallow and look the other way. I don't even know how, honestly, every private sector job I have, I've had, I've had to be way overqualified mm. for. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't understand how people stay in the yeah. private sector uh, unless you're like way overqualified. Like, I'll, I can like pick up stuff, I'll be a cashier. Mm -hmm. Like, but in terms of private sector, I don't understand. I don't know how black guys make it in the private sector. I, I, I don't know. Without being right, like super right. overqualified. You, you have to work at one of these companies that, you know, and I'm going to use diversity in air quotes, like you have to be really super focused on diversity. You know what I mean? And and, and even in those spaces, um, things come up. I've been fortunate a couple of times, like even right now, my current situation, you know, where I'm at now. Yeah, I'm in a private sector job? job now. And it's actually, I, if, I have to be honest, it's probably the best one that I've ever had, you know, and I've had some heart, but that's because, the company that I work for, they 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 don't just um, 
they don't just give platitudes about making it a you know a diverse work environment and trying to uh, do things to 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 help everybody out. They actually try to stand on that as much as they possibly can. And I have to give credit where credit is due in that regard. But um, it's been a long time coming to get to this point. Working in the private sector, you know, um, as someone who who uh, you know I had a felony in my background and. Um, I went to court and eventually got it expunged and everything like that. But as you know, when you go apply for a federal job, you know, that stuff is still in the database. And so right. when they run you, they do a quick background check. So you do a thumbprint and then the record pretty much comes back instantaneously and they can make a decision right there and not as to, you know, to hire you. So I, I haven't been fortunate enough to be able to get you know, into like a federal gig or even like a state gig or anything like that. But, you know, hey, it is what it is, man. I did what I did. So <laughs> that's kind of part of the game, man, you know, <laughs> unfortunately. But yeah. um, I think I think another way people make it in private industry is like credentials and politicking. Like if you have like, but that's another form of overqualification as well. Right. Like, you know, if you went to like the right schools yeah. or you have like Harvard, Columbia, NYU, whatever. But even then, that's kind of a form of overqualification because you, you, you might be working next to somebody that went to like something that's right below Ivy or a white guy who's like at a good state school. So it's it still kind of ends up being a different type of overqualification. Yeah. Right? I noticed that's and another not to way mention people, uh, the, uh, the right. area of it that goes into your social networks. You know, who you know that can get you into certain places and things like that, you know. Right. And yeah, who's, willing, that, gonna, who's right. willing to vouch for right. you. Yeah, yeah. And it's not but, just who you know, it's who's willing to yep. like, put something on the line. But, but but that also helps with going to those good schools because I yeah. noticed the black people who go to like the Harvards or Columbia's, they'll get a good social network, but this social network is usually some white friends and stuff. Because right. a lot of times, black people don't want to vouch for the other black person. They feel precarious themselves. A lot of times, your black There's, hookup is like the most useless <laughs> hookup uh, you can have. There's literally a, a book on that called Lone Pursuit. Are you see, okay, what is it um, called? Lone Yes. Okay. Let me put that that in my Amazon right now. (laughs) Lone Pursuit. Sharon Smith, I think, is her name. But yeah, like, it's just what he said. It's exactly Um, what he said. Even like, so white people will hook up their derelict nephew who shows up sometimes and like then it gets mm-hmm. fired right right <laughs> like they'll hook up their loser whatever right so and then but like according to the data even black people won't even hook mm-hmm. up their kids because like oh well, it's you so know, it's <laughs> so true and uh mario and i joked on another episode we talk about it, like your black connection oh, at a man. company they will act like it's the, it's yes. the underground railroad and they're, sneaking, and, they're, and they're sneaking out slaves it'll be like listen i'm i i, I just got here give me give me a year give me I'm a year and I'm gonna get you in, but I can't. Yeah, I can't rock the boat. I can't rock the boat. So you know, oh, you gotta knock on the door. Uh, uh, second moon on Tuesday. Stand outside. Knock twice on the door. At six thirty, uh, I'm gonna come and I'm gonna let you in. Yeah, six thirty, and then I'm gonna leave the door unlocked. But don't say you know me. You know, and come with your resume. It's like <laughs> it's just an interview. Right. Like, what? What? Right. What is all this? Like, like, what do you think I'm gonna do when I show up there? Like. I'm I'm gonna have no pants on. It's like, oh god! They got somebody coming here with no pants. Like Sheila, what is Sheila, who is this guy? Why does he have no pants? It's like that is so true. Or just getting basic just... information about it's like pulling teeth, man. It's like what? <laughs> 
Brother, you know, and it's so funny that you, it, this just happened to me not that long ago. I was asking a guy about, um, this guy was selling custom-made uh, safety vests, you know, the reflective vests. He claimed that he designed his own vests and everything like that. So I was trying to get his information so I could plug him, you know, because that I know a lot of people that would be interested in, but, you know, he did like custom stuff with Lakers, Raiders, all that kind of stuff, really good quality stuff. So I was like, yeah, brother, well, what's right. your, um, let me get your, your your Instagram or your, you know, whatever your website is. And, uh, you know, I'll go check it out and I'll, I'll plug it. I'll do a podcast and yada, yada, yada. He was like, yeah, uh, you know, you could just go on eBay and, and type in safety vests and Lakers or whatever and my stuff pops up. I'm like, but brother, I, I, I get all that. What's your Instagram, brother? Like, what? Uh, you know, yeah, it's on eBay. I, I'll just say, you know what, man? Just get the hell away from me. Why did you even bring it up? You know what I mean? Like, what? Am I, am I, what, what is, what is the, the, the disconnect dude, here? Dude, everything is just a fugitive stuff. But you might not my, be a liability. But right? <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah. <laughs> Did he not? He don't want to. My favorite. Although my favorite is don't say don't right, say you heard right. it from me. You know, it's like okay, there's an opening in my in in the company. Don't say you heard it from me. It's like wait, what's the point of having you there? Like why can't? I said, like, like I used to always I used to always hate hate that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. The subheading of this book is, is great. It? I looked is it, it up. Lone pursuit. pursuit or long pursuit? Yeah, loan loan is an L-O-N-E, but it's loan pursuit, distrust, and defensive and defensive individualism among the black poor. Oh man, I That's gotta really I good... gotta get that. Matter of fact, I'm yeah. gonna get that. <laughs> it's it's exactly what you just said about like the wow. the, the uselessness of the black. <laughs> I mean, she yeah. got a lot of interviews about like, well. I would have hooked up my son, but then, like, I don't know. A lot of people depend right. on me for this job, it, so I don't need him. I love up. this. <laughs> yeah, all my all my black friends. I went to the Ivy and stuff. They got hooked up from their white Ivy um, <laughs> peers that they politicked with. You know what I mean? Their yeah. their frats didn't really help them, but they were in a black frat. Like, like none of that stuff helped them. It was like their white friends they met at NYU or Columbia mm. or whatever. I and, love you know, that somebody actually took time oh, to write a book about this <laughs> because everyone in the community the knows uselessness about this. of the black like, hookup. Let's yeah, let's see if we can get her. Let's see if we can get her on because we've been talking about that for a while. I'm glad there's yeah. a book about it. I'm gonna try to get her on. Man, we got the bibliophile um, on, man. Some stuff how many we, we've got i've gotten a few books uh that he mentioned that i'm gonna check into all right y'all so that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good <laughs>